Go ahead and take out your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you that we are in a series of messages called Engage. And the idea is that you cannot simply ignore false teaching or let it go unchecked. But rather, the Bible calls Christians and especially pastors to be alert for false teaching. And the Bible calls us to expose the works of darkness. It teaches us to test all things according to the scriptures. We are to lovingly but firmly rebuke those who would teach things that are out of step with the scriptures. False teaching is dangerous to our souls. It's not something we can wink at or treat as no big deal. And our subject tonight is the Bible, Beth Moore, and gay Christianity. And some people outside of the church, when they heard that title, didn't like the fact that I put Beth Moore's name in the title. But I felt it was important because we're often tempted to not take these issues seriously until we realize that they hit close to home. Um, Beth Moore is someone who many of us have trusted for many years for Bible study resources for women. And so if the issue that we're discussing tonight has affected her, then it's a sign that we all need to be paying attention to this. I want to be clear. I'm not attacking Beth Moore. I'm only using her as one example out of many who are being affected by the critical theory movement that we've already talked a great deal about. Uh, and that in her case, it happens to do with our subject tonight, which is the subject of homosexuality. And so I'm going to explain that, and then we won't talk much about Beth Moore any longer. We'll deal with the issue. Ten years ago, uh, Beth Moore published a book called Praying God's Word. Uh, that's a great subject. And as you know from our monthly prayer meetings, the practice of praying God's word is something we take seriously. It's something we believe in. But in one section of that particular book, Beth Moore addressed the subject of homosexuality. Uh, hard copies of that book are now out of print, but the Kindle version is still widely available. And it came to light recently that... Beth had gone back to that book and removed some of what she originally wrote about homosexuality. And when asked about this, she announced that she did this because she felt that what she had written was causing undue harm and keeping people from the Word of God. In an online response to a man named David, she said, It nearly makes me cry, David. It was not a fast decision. I took several years to contemplate what to do about it as I watched the damage it caused. It's an old book, but still widely used. It was not my intention, but I made people feel demonized. I overshot scripture by a mile. So these are two themes that came out in her reason for removing that section um, people who struggle with homosexuality felt demonized, and she believed she had overshot Scripture by a mile. 
So she had one view in 2009. Now in 2019, she believes her 2009 view was overshooting Scripture. It was saying what Scripture doesn't say. So listen to what she removed. Quote, before we proceed to our Scripture prayers for overcoming sexual strongholds, We are wise to address another deadly sexual assault of the evil one in our society, homosexuality. I have wonderful news for anyone who has struggled with homosexual sin. God indeed can deliver you and anxiously awaits your full cooperation. Do not let Satan shame you into not seeking forgiveness, fullness, and complete restoration in Jesus Christ. I know complete transformation is possible, not only because God's word says so, but because I have witnessed it with my own eyes. I know plenty of believers who have been set free from homosexuality. So that's what she wrote in 2009. And frankly, while I wouldn't have worded some of the things the way that she worded them, I significantly agree with 2009, Beth Moore. I do believe that complete transformation is possible for homosexuals. And I certainly believe that they can find forgiveness, fullness, and restoration in Jesus Christ. But there is a, a new teaching now that would deny this. And in recent days, it has led to a vigorous debate Uh, For example, at the PCA General Assembly this year, uh, this is the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination known for being conservative, Bible-believing, serious about the Word of God. Um, A PCA church sponsored what was called the Revoice Conference, which held topics like redeeming queer culture, gay girl full house, And coming out as a gay pastor. Covenant Theological Seminary. Um, A bastion for a long time of conservative biblical theology. Helped sponsor the conference. The aim of the conference was, quote, to promote LGBTQ plus flourishing in the historic Christian tradition. So here are those two things coming together. In their mind, they want to promote LGBTQ flourishing in the historic Christian tradition. So what is this new teaching that is causing well-respected, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Christians to pull back from calling homosexuality a sin? Two disclaimers up front. Number one, know that most of these folks continue to be clear that marriage is to be between a man and a woman and that sexual activity outside of marriage is wrong. So the proponents of this new teaching still hold to a biblical sexual ethic and they would continue to agree that homosexual acts, just like heterosexual acts outside of marriage, are wrong. And second, you need to know that these folks have mostly come to this new position because they've been trying to listen to their brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with homosexual desires. 
So it is not that Beth Moore has just gone off the deep end. Not at all. Rather, she has been trying to love people who struggle with this issue. She's been trying to understand their situation. And she's been trying to respond rightly. So what is the new teaching that these folks have adopted? There are two main parts to it. The first is that homosexuality remains a significant part of a gay person's identity even after they come to Christ. So when a a gay person comes to Christ and starts to follow Christ, it doesn't mean that suddenly all their desires to commit sinful homosexual acts just go away. Those feelings remain. And therefore, while they are actively choosing to say no to those desires, while they are actively choosing to follow Christ's teaching about sexual activity, they do continue to view themselves as homosexuals. In other words, in this view, there's such a thing as a gay Christian. It is a person that continues to struggle with homosexual desires or to experience homosexual desires, but out of obedience to Christ, they do not act on those desires. And then second, most of the folks in this movement do not believe that complete transformation is possible in this life. In other words, gay people don't suddenly have their homosexual desires replaced with heterosexual desires when they come to Christ. And even as they grow as a Christian, they believe that they will continue to struggle with those desires until they die. So there is no complete transformation. So Pastor Greg Johnson Put it this way on the floor of the PCA General Assembly. He has since this time come out himself as a gay pastor within the PCA. He says, I was raised by an atheist father in an atheist home, and I shared that atheism. I knew I was gay at age 11. I was in a Baptist fellowship hall at a cousin's wedding when I realized And this was the summer of 1984 that I couldn't take my eyes off one of the groomsmen. I remember feeling a massive weight of shame. And then when I noticed that everyone was staring at me, I felt fear. It was that same day at that same wedding that someone explained that the groomsmen had a brother that the family had disowned because he was gay. And they were Christians and they couldn't tolerate somebody that disgusting. And that was the day I realized that Christians hate gay people. By God's grace, he pursued me, and in college, I became a Christian. I trusted Jesus. I was baptized in a PCA church at age 20. The next year, I enrolled in Covenant Seminary, not because I had any interest in going into ministry. That took another decade. But because I had to catch up and make up for lost time. He says, I have read every single book that R.C. Sproul has ever written. I have purchased all of his VHS tapes and memorized them all. And I was still hungry. At this point, he said, I'm 46 years old and I'm still same-sex attracted. My orientation has not changed. And for those who are exclusively same-sex attracted who are men, 
We don't even know for certain. He says, I've talked to every head of every ministry. I cannot find a single instance of same-sex attraction going away. So that's the claim. He he cannot find a single instance of same-sex attraction going away, even among those who had those desires and became Christians. Now remember, these are people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, Beth Moore said in in another place that the reason she deleted her previous statements from that book was because she believed they exceeded Scripture. She's trying to be biblical. Greg Johnson is trying to be biblical. So we need to honor that. But we need to ask the question, what does the Bible say about these issues? And is it a big deal? If some people think of themselves as gay Christians, if they're not going to act on it, if they're not going to commit sinful acts, does it matter if they're going to think of themselves with that kind of identity? Well, let's talk about why I think this does matter. Uh, Many of you will remember uh, that we had the privilege of having Rosaria Butterfield here at our church. Uh, She's not only an example of a former lesbian redeemed by Christ, but she also used to be a professor. And when she was a professor of women's studies, her focus was critical theory. So she used to be a big proponent of the very things that we've been talking about in recent weeks. But now, as a Christian, she says this, The gospel is on a collision course with sexual identity. And its newest rendition is celibate gay Christianity. They will tell you that they are a sexual minority. They will tell you that they need visibility in the church. They will tell you that they will not act on it, and therefore they need not repent of any sexual desire that God says no to. And this idea has found its foothold. And the time is now. So what we saw, for example, with that Revoice conference was a new cry for churches to pay attention to the people in their congregations who are gay Christians who have been denied a voice for too long. That's the way it was put forward. And they say that their desires are not in and of themselves sinful because they don't act on them. What we have in this new movement is the category of a person called a gay Christian. Uh, It's also a movement that's seeking to bring critical theory and its unbiblical understanding of persons into the church. Um, If the church of Christ adopts these views, it means redefining justice from what it means in the Bible. And I think it will bring about further division. This is what critical theory does. When people begin to put themselves in these subgroups, like gay Christian, it only leads to more division. And what we've already seen is those within this group of gay Christian are saying we have been oppressed. We have not been listened to. And so it pits people against people. It breeds constant strife and conflict. It's opposed to Christ's prayer in John 17 that his people be one. Other reasons why this matters, Uh, for example, one ministry. This is a ministry that was endorsed by 
Russell Moore and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. So we, as a convention, through that particular entity, endorsed this ministry, and this ministry gave this advice on their website. Should a same-sex couple stop living together if they become Christians? Answer, while the couple should cease the sexual aspect of their relationship, it might be appropriate for them to continue living together, and especially if they have children. The author said, holding back from sexual intimacy does not spell an end to physical intimacy, not for a moment. There are wonderful ways to be physically close to other people without being sexually close to them. We hug and kiss our friends and relatives in non-sexual ways. We hold hands with children. Some people, especially guys, love to play fight. My sons love to do this with me. And personally, I would prefer to cuddle them, but I have to play fight with them because it is a way that they give and receive physical affection. None of these things necessarily have anything to do with sex, but they have much to do with physical affection and intimacy. So as St. Paul puts it, greet one another with a holy kiss. Of course, it may take time and a bit of trial and error for a couple to redefine the boundaries and work out how they can best remain physically close to one another without crossing the line into sexual intimacy. But I believe this is worth working at in order both to honor God by not crossing that line and to honor Him by sharing healthy physical affection with the people He has given to you. So that was the advice. Do you hear the compromise in that advice? Rather than embracing the vision of the family taught by the Bible, it's this idea of believing that as long as you don't commit the homosexual act, you can go on living as a gay person and be okay in the eyes of God. Um, they're to embrace gay Christianity as their identity. Celibate gay Christianity. Okay, so what does the Bible say about this issue? So let's take the first claim first. Does homosexuality remain a significant part of a gay person's identity even after he or she becomes a Christian? Well, let's begin with a biblical principle that I think brings light to this issue. And here it is. Our identity is not found in our subjective feelings and desires, but in God's objective revelation. So I'm going to say that again. Our identity is not found in our subjective feelings and desires, but in God's objective revelation. We do not determine who we are for ourselves. God tells us who we are. Which is more sure? What you feel about who you are? Or what the Bible tells you about who you are? So I had you turn to Psalm 119. Look at Psalm 119 beginning in verse 97. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So if we were to use our board here, we were to create two columns. This is our feelings. And this is the Word of God. What are some of the adjectives that we would have to use to describe our feelings? Changing. They change. Our feelings are, are fickle. It can be one thing and then something else. What else? Do your feelings always tell you the truth? Have you ever just felt that somebody was really angry at you and you found out later they weren't angry at you at all? You just felt it. It was just, just a wrong impression, right? Our feelings can be deceptive. Our feelings can lead us into thinking one thing rather than what is true. Weird. Our feelings can be weird. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. One honest man in the room. Good job, Bill. Right? Yes, they can. They're unsure. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to, to root our understanding of ourselves and our feelings. Now contrast that with the Word of God. What do we know about the Word of God? Steadfast. It does not change. What it said yesterday, it says today, and it will say tomorrow. What else? Trustworthy. It will always tell us the truth. It will not lie to us. Anything else? Pure. Pure. It is going to lead us in a way of righteousness. Are your feelings always going to lead you in a way of righteousness? But the Word of God will lead you in a way of righteousness. So our default position as Christians, as we think about this question, identity, identity, who are we? is that we must go to the Word of God rather than to our own feelings or even our own experiences to answer the question. So if you want to discover yourself, if you want to go on a journey of self-discovery, don't search your feelings. Search your Bible. Now, what does God say about who we are in the pages of the Bible? Well, the most fundamental truths are found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right there at the beginning, where we find out that we are created beings. We are not God. We are creatures. We were made by God. We are under God's authority. We belong to God. We're part of His world. 
we discover that we were made in the image of God. So that the very attributes that mark God, in a limited way, mark us. So he has power, we have limited power. He has wisdom, we have limited wisdom. He has the capability of of being kind and compassionate in various situations. So do we. We bear his image. We find that God made man as male and as female. We find that God gave us the purpose of dominion in the world. These are the things that the Bible tells us to think about when we think about who we are. Does the Bible ever use a person's sexual feelings and desires to define their identity and the way they are to think about themselves? It does not. The idea of heterosexual or homosexual as part of your identity, that that way of thinking doesn't even come from the Bible. It comes from Freud, it comes from psychoanalysis, and it comes from critical theory. It's not a biblical way of thinking. In the New Testament, the word used to describe a homosexual is the word arsenokoites. And it's the joining together of two words. One that means man, and one that means bed. A homosexual in the Bible is someone who goes to bed with other men. It's not someone who has the desire to do this. It's someone who actually does it. The word used to be translated sodomite. Okay? It's not a popular word anymore. But that's, it's a fine translation. It's someone who is actually committing the act of sodomy. Biblically, you're not a gay person because you have gay feelings. You're a gay person if you act on those feelings. Your actions define you. As Jesus says, we, we know people by their fruit, by what they actually do. And so the key text here is 1 Corinthians 6. Everybody turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. So do you see the phrase at the end of verse 9. Men who practice homosexuality. It's actually all one word in the Greek. Arsenokoites. Okay. It's the word that used to be. Maybe still in the King James. Sodomite. And it actually gets at what the Greek is getting at. Paul says to the Christians in Rome, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. You used to be this. Now you're not that any longer. Don't be deceived into thinking this passage is difficult to translate 
or that the words mean something different than they come across as meaning. This is not a difficult passage. But people play all kinds of games with this passage to try and find a place for gay Christianity here. But the reality is it is easy to translate. It's clear in what it's teaching. In Corinth, there were men who used to commit sodomy. They were homosexuals. And now, they are no longer those people because they have been washed and they have been sanctified and they have been justified. Their past sins are forgiven. They're no longer living as they once did. And so they're not to think of themselves as homosexuals, as arsenicoites, as men who practice homosexuality any longer. Such were you. Not any longer. What this new movement wants to do is say, we used to be this, but now we want to keep that identity even as we move forward following Christ. Imagine if we treated other sins that way. So right after Paul mentions homosexuality, he mentions thieves. What makes someone a thief? Have you ever had the urge to steal? Ever? In your entire life? You have, I'm sure, at some point. That didn't make you a thief. It's actually committing the theft that makes you a thief. A thief. There are people who have a regular, recurring desire to steal. Kleptomaniacs, right? You've heard this phrase, klepto, this word, kleptomaniacs. These are people who have this recurring desire to steal. So can you imagine a group of people saying, we have this urge to steal. We can't help that we have this urge to steal. But we're Christians. We're following Jesus. We're not going to act on it. But we want to have a category of Christians known as klepto-Christians. And we've been ignored for too long. And we need to have a voice in the church. And you say, Justin, that's ridiculous. And I say, I agree. But why is it ridiculous? And do you see that by following this path, you're going to end up creating many different categories of Christians? Each one of them wanting to have their voice heard. Each one of them creating new lines of division within the church. This really is just another form of critical theory coming into the church. As each one of these studies has been trying to show. All the different ways that this appears. Note that that Paul mentioned drunkards. Do you see that in verse 10? Drunkards. Because when people have pushed back against this gay Christianity idea, this is the argument. I actually saw Greg Johnson himself use this argument in talking to a friend. He said, it's just like alcoholics. He says there are many alcoholics who are Christians, but they're Christian alcoholics. And they've been told to always think of themselves for the rest of their lives as alcoholics. They're not to ever drink again, but they're to always think of themselves as alcoholics. He says it's the same thing. He says we're we're to think of ourselves, those who have these homosexual desires. We're, we're, We're Christians. We're gay Christians. 
Well, do you notice that here in this same passage, Paul says to these drunkards, such were some of you. There are some Christian organizations who have said we ought not to embrace the Alcoholics Anonymous worldview and the way we treat people who struggle with alcoholism. Because this idea of people continuing to identify themselves, to think of themselves in light of their sin is contrary to Scripture. Paul says you were a drunkard. That's who you were in the past. That's not how you're to think of yourself anymore. You have been washed, sanctified, justified. You are to think of yourself in biblical terms as an adopted child, as a forgiven sinner. Does it mean you don't recognize that there's something you struggle with? But you don't bring that, that, that desire, or that experience, or that sin into your identity and think of yourself that way. As Christians, the Bible is clear about our identity in Christ. We are not defined by our feelings or desires. We are defined by who God says we are. And if we are Christians, God has said that we are blood-bought sinners. We are children of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. That's who we are. That's how we are to think of ourselves. So, we must reject the first idea of gay Christianity, namely that someone should continue to think of themselves that way as they follow Jesus. Biblically, a homosexual or a gay person is one who is continuing to live in that sin and to commit that sin. But if you're a Christian, you've repented of that sin. You've turned from that sin. You are no longer living in that sin. Such, you, you, you were that. Such were you. But in the Bible, there's no such thing as a gay Christian that that can't exist. A Christian who struggles with sexual desires that are immoral, absolutely, that can exist. Is there anyone in this room that is not a Christian who struggles from time to time with immoral sexual desires? That person exists. But we're not to label ourselves or bring that into our identity. So what about the second claim of this new teaching? This is the claim that made... Beth Moore think that she had overspoke and exceeded the Bible. Um, Because she had claimed 10 years ago that complete restoration was possible. She even said that she knew people who had been set free from homosexuality. 10 years later, she's changed her mind about that. Is there complete transformation? Is there complete restoration for someone who struggles with homosexual desires or any other desire? If you define homosexuality as someone who commits homosexual acts, the way the Greek word does, then her statement 10 years ago was absolutely true. Because there are many, many people who have been set free by the Spirit of God from acts of homosexuality. They no longer live in the sin they once did. They no longer commit the acts they once did. But if you adopt this new definition... If you say a homosexual is anyone who has these ongoing desires and urges, well, then things get a little bit more tricky. Can a person whose life has been full of these desires be set free completely from those desires this side of heaven? First thing I would say is do not limit the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm never going to say that the Spirit can't do something. 
unless it's sin. The Spirit of God is God and the most powerful force in the world. Second, homosexual desires are like other sinful desires, whether it's desires to steal or to lie or to be bitter. And some people are born with a disposition that causes them to have a greater struggle with a particular desire than someone else. Can a person be set completely free from the desire to lie? Well, the Holy Spirit is certainly powerful enough to do that. He hasn't promised to any one particular person that in this life they'll be completely set free from that desire. But as we grow in Christ, we should find ourselves coming to love truth more and more. Can a person be set completely free in this life from the desire to steal? The Holy Spirit is certainly powerful enough to do that. Uh, He hasn't made a promise to any particular Christian that in their life that desire will ever completely go away. But as we grow in Christ, we should find ourselves growing in our love for others, and that would include respect for their property. And then, of course, ultimately in heaven, that desire would be gone. So can a person be set completely free in this life from sinful heterosexual desires? The desire to lust. Can a person be set completely free in this life from heterosexual lust? The Holy Spirit is certainly powerful enough to do that. He hasn't promised to any particular Christian that he will set them free completely from that in this life. But as we grow, we should find ourselves growing in our desire for purity, in our love for God's design. If we're single, we should be growing in our regard for the beauty of chastity, something seldom talked about in churches anymore. So what is the takeaway? I think we have to reject this new gay Christianity movement. And we must reject the idea that a person should define themselves based on their feelings rather than on God's revelation. I think we need to beware the rise of critical theory in the church with all of its divisiveness, the way it puts people into subgroups and then pits them against one another. And as Christians, we are to embrace our identity as forgiven sinners, as children of God, and we're to see ourselves as God sees us in Christ. Okay. Questions? It's a great question. I'm, and I'm glad you asked it because I think any biblically minded person who just heard what I just said, that would be the passage that would come to my mind. In fact, I have on my notes question and answers, and underneath, what about the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, so I have it there. So actually, I have an answer all written out for, for that question, right? Um, yes, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we are told that those who lust are adulterers. We are told that those who hate are murderers. And in that sense, we're all adulterers. In that sense, we are all murderers and liars and cheaters. In that sense, we're all homosexuals. Unless you're one of those very rare people who's never had a single moment of lust for a person of the same sex. Never at any point in your life. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount 
is not teaching us to embrace those titles as our long-term identities. That's foreign to that text. He's teaching us to recognize our sinfulness and repent of it. The aim of what Jesus is saying there in the Sermon on the Mount is that we would repent of our lust, repent of our hatred, repent of our dishonesty. The problem with the gay Christianity movement is it says they do not need to repent of their homosexual desires as long as they don't act on them. And rather, they can continue to identify themselves, embrace that identity. Um, The word repent means to hate something and to seek to be rid of it. This is a movement that is saying we ought not to seek to be rid of these feelings. In fact, we want to celebrate the feelings while saying that we cannot act on them. We want to have conferences celebrating the fruit of these feelings and the great things that have been done in the name of queer Christianity. So in Matthew 5, Jesus is not teaching us to take on these labels as the way we think of ourselves as Christians. Rather, he's simply given us those things to say, here's why you need to become a Christian. Here's why you need to repent. Here's why you need to to turn to Christ and and be saved. Um, You are a sinner. And especially speaking to the Jews in his day who might have thought, we're not like the Gentiles. We're not like the pagans. He he was basically showing them that the same heart that's in a murderer, the same heart that's in an adulterer, isn't anyone who's ever had the seeds of those things, right? Whether it be lust or hatred. But he's not teaching us to think of ourselves as Christians in those categories, or else we'd all be walking around thinking of ourselves as murderers and adulterers, and that's not the way we're, we're not to embrace those labels as our identity. 